0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Daniel Knott. Based in the greater Hamburg area, Daniel is a software test engineer and a popular conference speaker. Currently, he's head of software testing at MybornWolf, a strategic IT consultancy based in Munich. You can follow him on Twitter at dnlkntt, and check out his website at adventuresinqa.com, as well as his software testing YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash Daniel Knott. Daniel is the author of the LeanPub books, Smartwatch App Testing, and Hands-On Mobile App Testing a guide for software testers and anyone involved in the mobile app business. In the book, Daniel covers what makes mobile testing different, the special challenges it presents, and introduces you to advanced mobile testing methods and tools and much more. In this interview, we're going to talk about Daniel's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a content creator and author. So thank you very much, Daniel, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Hi, Len. Thank you for having me today. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, So I was wondering if you could Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into a career in software testing.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Let me start. Um, Yeah, I I grew up in the middle of Germany, uh, basically in the middle of nowhere on a small farm with my parents, my sisters. And... Um, yeah, it, w- it was a great time, because back then I already was like a little explorer, you know, um, trying to did, um, dismantle on, and demount like all kinds of technical issues and, and topics, so that was great and fun, uh, I also grew up with lots of animals, so I was kind of grounded back then, but uh, then uh, out of nowhere, I don't know when it was happened, when I was a teenager, I, I first had the first magazine of, of computers, uh, in a store and it was I was pretty much hooked with like, okay, I want to be in, in computer uh, in computer science. I would like to learn everything about computers. Um, I started to, uh, to build up my own computer. I can't remember when it was. It was somewhere in the 90s. So that, that was great fun. I learned many things also by <laughs> by mistake, breaking things, you know and uh, it was kind of expensive. And, and then actually in, in university, um, I had my first contact with, uh, with software testing. Both, uh, it was in 2006 when I was uh, working as a working student at IBM in Germany. And they had basically no idea what to do with me. <laughs> so they, they put me into, into software testing back then and said, hey, here's a piece of software. Uh, can, can you test it? And I was like, yeah, okay, sound interesting. What, what can go wrong? So it was not really professional testing back then. You know, I was just clicking around uh, hoping to to find some bugs and to, to file some issues so that my colleagues would be w- would be happy to with it and at the same time i had a i had a great professor at the university and he was like into software testing so he gave me some insights into what kind of books i should read and uh, gave me some ideas on what professional software testing means and basically from then i was, I was pretty much hooked about software testing because i wasn't like the, the coding guy, you know, there were like people in the university um, love to write code, you know, coding, coding, coding was their passion and for me it was like, nah, it's interesting, but there's more, you know, more to explore and more to uncover. Uh, and so I, I, I said to myself, okay, I really want to go into software testing and I would like to become a software tester in my career. And yeah, so I finished university, I think it was in 2009, and then I got my first job in two thousand ten as a software test engineer in a company, and yeah, I was I was basically in heaven, you know, like finding like minded people, exchanging on the topic, and and yeah, became became a professional software tester. That's great.
0: Um, I've got a couple of questions about uh, the the earlier part of the story before we yeah, we, so get on, we get on your career um, and so uh, so you were building this computer in the 90s was that something that your parents introduced you to I mean you said you found out about it on from a magazine and stuff like that was it kind of more independent mm-hmm. and you're just like asking your parents to help you out financing mm-hmm. the project or uh, both
1: both so it was i I found it out on my on my on my own basically, when I was just reading the the, the articles and the, and the papers then. But of course, I hadn't that. I mean, I wasn't, I was in, in school, right? I mean, I had no money, basically, right? I had some, some pocket money left. And I was doing some summer internships to get some money. And I was, you know, saving all my income, that's like birthday presents and these kind of things to to actually uh, buy computer parts. But of course, my parents supported me. Um, I, And they also p- paid like the, the biggest portion of the first computer, I think it was in uh, 1994 1995 something like that and so they they already have seen that hey that this might be something you know something for the future and that was that was great actually and then also why my, my friends they they also got started with it and you know then we, we played together some games of course and then we we, we learned more about uh, like how to 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 configure them you know how to also to to extend them and these kind of things so. and did you have the internet available uh first time internet was 1996 if I remember correctly so yeah
0: yeah okay it's it's, just some some time time ago (laughs) the reason I ask is always just to kind of like you know there's these different eras in 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 when people are introduced to computing and it's just so fascinating to think about what you the tools you didn't have available um Mm -hmm. to sort of figure things out right you know no stack Mm -hmm. overflow that that kind of nothing um Mm -hmm. uh and um actually just one just one kind of almost selfish question but um I grew up in a in a sort of agricultural area in the middle of mm-hmm. Canada. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I just wanted to ask you So, but this is the kind of place where I remember one time actually, and um, we had, a, in my high school, there was a, um, a, a foreign student for a year from somewhere in Germany and they went from one, the family took him from one city to another. This was in a province called Saskatchewan. And mm-hmm. of course they were outside the city within five minutes. Uh, and this is a very flat, very flat plane. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the joke being your dog can't run away because you can see him for three days. Um, and after about 20 minutes, having not passed another house, this German student said, you know, when's the next city? And they said, well, in 200 kilometers, um, uh, and, and there in this place, farms are just sort of like, you know, you can, I mean, you could just, you know, this is a bit of a caricature, but like, you know, a kind of like square mile, and there's just like a picket fence or not a picket fence, a post post and barbed wire fence. And that's a farm. Um, and it's mostly wheat and canola and things like that, that people grow. But what, what, what did you grow on your farm? Uh, it was like a little tiny farm my, my grandpa had we had some what
1: did we had we had some cows we had some pigs we had two horses and you know it was more like um, something to to get everything on your own like to be on your own with with food and vegetables and these kind of things yeah so it was it was a rather small farm nothing big nothing fancy we were not selling anything it okay, was just okay.
0: For, for, for our own yeah Got it. Got it. Oh, that's no, that's yeah. just just so interesting. Um, and you actually, you mentioned something too um, about being a working student at at, at mm-hmm. IBM. Uh, what what does that mean? Um, I started university
1: in when was it two thousand and hmm, it's a long time ago. Was it one or two? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, I I was working. Um, I was studying computer science, and um, I had a chance to to be a working student, like to work in parallel to my university studies at IBM. And yeah, to, to, to get some money you know, to, to earn some money. And I, I had the luck to, to had some, some local connections there. And so they, they invited me to, to, for an interview. Uh, I wasn't really like advanced in computer science. I mean, I had all this knowledge of, you know, assembling computers and these kinds of things. But um, then they asked me like, hey, yeah, sure, like we give you a chance. Like uh, you, you seem like a nice guy. Um, and so I had the, the, yeah, the time there to actually start with software testing. And I did like
0: during my my whole time off um, at the university. Yeah, so working in parallel. And you mentioned, and so this introduction to software testing was they kind of didn't know what to do with you, and they sort of exactly threw you at something where you couldn't you couldn't sort of like write write code that would break something for the the customers or something like that. And so you you were just thrown into sort of clicking around. And what I mean, what was that like? Did you have to like? I'm just it's just so curious because the software testing is a very interesting Mm -hmm. job, right? Because For example, um, there's there can there can often be sort of adversarial kind of not exactly relationships, but kind of dynamics involved. Mm -hmm. Um, And it could it could be, for example, that some some young person on the first day of their job discovers a flaw just just by clicking around that someone senior might have to answer for. Was that a kind of (laughs) dynamic that you you had to you had to find your way through in those early days? No, not really. I would say it
1: was like it was a storage software that we had that we that we developed. Um, so for for mainframe systems, like I mean IBM, right? I mean, so and it was uh, it was a storage management system that we had to test, and they, they they gave me some time, of course, to to explore the product. You know, to do as actually some exploratory testing. What's like really common these days because I had no idea there were no requirements for me what I should look for. So I was like really like signing up on on the on the staging system. I uh, had, an, had an account and was just browsing and exploring it. And I, I had no idea of, about the product at all, right? So I was asking lots of questions. And at some point, uh, some of the seniors, they got a bit like disappointed by all, all the questions that I was asking, but exactly that's the right thing as a software tester to do, right, to, to ask questions. Even though it feels sometimes you know f- you f- you feel not welcome, um, but that that's that's part of the game, right? To to answer uh, to ask the the difficult questions and to to get the the thinking starting at the development side, right? So they think about why did we do it? Is it the right way we have done it, and so forth and so forth. So and but I was in a lucky position because the people there was they were really nice and kind and open-minded. They also supported me in. You know, okay, this is a test tool that we were using to—I can't remember the test tool back then. Um, so there was like a testing tool, like a test management system where we were filing bugs. But we were also had—we had some some test automation in place already for the tools. So I had to look into the in the code as well. So we did also a lot of pair programming together, pair testing. So there were a lot of like right things that I have done, of course. And they teach me, but they haven't told me that, that that's the way how it should be,
0: right? So that was everything a bit mixed up. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's, that's so interesting, actually, actually, that you mentioned there um, that, that you hadn't been taught and you just kind of, you know, partly by, it sounds like being given the freedom to explore, you kind of found your way to the right, doing the right things uh, naturally. Um, but uh, one thing that I think you've talked about somewhere in a blog post or in, in a talk is that, um, or maybe in your book, um, is that you studied computer science um, mm-hmm. and Software testing is not really taught, generally speaking, in computer science, or at the very least, wasn't, no. wasn't back then. Um, no. And that, that reminds me of a great metaphor that someone I, I interviewed for the podcast once who had a hand in kind of developing computer science curricula in, this, in the United States. He said that like version control becoming kind of popular in the last, I don't know, let's say 15 years or something like that um, was kind of like a sign of how young computer science was. It was it was kind of like the surgeons learning to wash their hands. Um, mm-hmm. That's the stage. But then there, there'd be all kinds of, and you can imagine when that happened, there'd be all kinds of people like, I'm a real surgeon. I don't need to wash my hands, <laughs> you know? Um, and it's it's always struck me with all the sort I've interviewed quite a few people who are into software mm-hmm. testing uh, for the podcast. And it's often struck me that there's, we're not at the washing hands stage yet, actually, if we're not, We'll, we, I'm saying we in this sort of cheesy way, but like if we're not at the stage where we're actually like giving people a software testing class in computer science courses, maybe we're actually not at the washing hands stage yet.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a that's great metaf- metaphor. I mean, it was similar in my case. Um, I think there was only one, in one semester at the university, we had uh, in software engineering class, it, it was called, and it was like a, a bigger project that we had to do as students to develop a piece of software. And um, there were there was one or two lectures that covered software testing back then. That that's it, right? It was like the you know testing pyramid, you know writing unit testing, integration testing, and so forth and so forth. But and that's it, right? And that that that's that what the developers uh, learned about uh, software testing in university. And I think that's that's critical, right? I mean, looking at the industry these days, and also on the on the complexity of systems that that we develop and that we that we are using on, on a daily basis. Yeah, it's, it's not just a website or an app that we're using it's so many many systems that are running in the background and it needs to be configured and the developers have have the, the, the quality mindset already in place because otherwise it they will completely screw up in the end right so that's that's definitely a problem i see and i just talked this week to a university professor and also like asking him like hey what what kind of things are you doing for for software testing and yeah, it was the same answer it was like yeah it's just the basics and uh he told me that it's they just have not enough time you know they have to to cope in so many things in in like six semesters or in three four years uh, to teach students the fundamental of, of computer science like programming and architectural things and and but i would wish for to have some
0: some more testing
1: there yeah yeah i
0: guess i mean it's easy for us to sort of just you know breezily say why don't you teach more of this and it's like well then the obvious answer is, well, then we'll have to teach less of something else, you know, so exactly. at, at the very exactly. least and there's yeah. going to be two other guys complaining about their thing that they care about that we're yeah. not teaching. But exactly. But at the same time, it, exactly. I mean, you know, but but that but to take it seriously, there are, of course, there are trade-offs. Um, and mm-hmm. I've often wondered if, I mean, part of the, there's just this kind of cultural dynamic, right? And I, I mean, cultural, sort of like corporate culture kind of sense where um, there's people who make stuff and then you hand it off to people and like, see if we made any mistakes you know, kind of attitude towards testing or even um, Mm -hmm. uh, I think I forget who it was, but I interviewed someone a long time ago where their first, they didn't, they they didn't know anything about computer science or anything like that. And they Mm -hmm. got hired as a software tester. And what that meant was you've got a cubicle in a row of cubicles (laughs) and you have a literally like a, 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 like a bunch of pages with check boxes Mm -hmm. and they, they got you to open up a piece of software. And the first one was like, click here, click here, click here, click here, click here, record what happened, click here, click here, click here, click here, click here, record what happened. And of course, if, if that's what you think software testing is, right, of course, if you if you're an ambitious person, or you're a creative person, or or you're, you know, what have you? Yeah, that's not something you're going to want to do. And that's something that's going to basically I mean, and you know, we know, we have to take into account the fact that cultures have status in them, right? There's status accorded to certain kinds of things and certain others. But um, you know, the, the, the sort of metaphor you used, of your first experience of it, of, of, of it as exploring something, particularly in a big company with sort of big established kind of things that they're doing that are very complex, yeah. that idea of exploring and sort of getting to know something that's already been built, um, mm-hmm. you know, is is just a very different way of getting into how complex and interesting software testing can be. Absolutely. Correct. Um, yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, and so anyway, yeah, so we've, we've sort of covered that. And, and uh, one, one interesting thing that happened in, in your career is that um, you ended up mm-hmm. uh, getting into sort of content creation, right? And I think your first, mm-hmm. your first way into that was uh, starting your blog. Um, mm-hmm, exactly. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that happened. There's probably a few people mm-hmm. listening yeah. who are like, I'd like to be a content creator. Um, how did you, how, what was your inspiration to get the confidence to start? And uh, mm-hmm. how did you find the time to, to do that?
1: Um, it, I just also checked it before on my LinkedIn profile when I actually started my blog because I wasn't able uh, to remember exactly it was like in October 2011 or November 2011 something like so more than 10 years now and it basically happened because I was uh, giving my first talk on a conference um, so back then uh, my company we had uh, we had a sponsoring booth uh, at the conference Agile testing days it's a pretty uh, common uh, software testing um, Conference uh, in, in the world. It's also based in Germany, and back then we had we had a um, how's it called sponsored speaking slot at the conference. You know, usually the sidetrack where nobody would like to talk and nobody would like to go because it's usually the sales pitch from companies. Um, but I was actually really lucky that my 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 boss back then um, she asked me like, Hey Daniel, you know, you just switched over to mobile testing. Uh, don't you think this might be a really nice topic uh, to to talk about at the conference? Um, because it's so new I mean it was uh, I switched to mobile testing end of 2010 and there was literally nothing out there right from from a tooling perspective everything was not really mature enough and I was like okay what should I talk about (laughs) I was like pretty nervous and okay it's like yeah let's do it it was like 20 minutes talk or something at the of testing days and um, I I was the only mobile testing talk back then on, on the conference and it was just a small room and it was crowded like crazy it, they opened up the doors the, people were sitting outside on 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 the on the hallway they actually put some some speakers outside that people could listen to my talk and i was like oh my god what's going to happen here um because i was talking about like challenges in mobile testing like what what i have seen in the past few months when i was working as a, as a mobile tester and yeah um i i spent two more days at the conference but i was literally just giving interviews to people talking to people they would like to know more about the topic and i even got the first request to write a book about it It it's like okay wait 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 that's that's too fast you know i'm just in the in this field of uh, mobile testing for i was half a year or something i need to learn more about it and then I, i came back home from the conference was pretty much hooked and like full of adrenaline somehow because i wasn't but also in a shocked uh, state, I would say, was like, well, "What's going on here? This is this might be a hot topic for people back then." And and so I thought, okay, what can I do? I mean, I got also invited to many other conferences to give the same talk again. And at the same time, I was I had the feeling that I, I just need to learn more about it. But um, what I have seen and I have felt on the conference was I need to share it with others. So that's why I said, okay, let's let's create a blog. Yeah, you know, just i had no idea i had no ambition to 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 be any anytime soon to be an author you know to have some some year later to have a youtube channel or something like that i was just like would like to to use the blog to share my knowledge and and also the main purpose for creating it back then was also to reflect on the things that i've learned and also the things that i have made in the daily business as as a mobile tester back then yeah i was uh, trying out so many tools that were on the market back then, and I wrote about them. I was like, okay, this is not working out because of X, Y, Z, and how to integrate into CI/CD, you know, and the, all these kind of things. I was just like writing down after uh, after work hours at home because I had the feeling that it, it, it's useful for others that would like to come into that in that field. And yeah, I was I was shocked. Like I got so, so many great feedback on on the blog, and kept me kept me busy. And like the, the next few years, I really loved it because I had the people that loved it. Now they just like, hey, keep keep on going. That's so interesting. We learned so many things from it. So that that was actually my my step into uh, content creation. Again, I would say a coincidence because my my former boss back then said, hey, you know, you have some some cool topic that you're working uh, on right now. So why not giving a talk and you know, it was like a little tiny stone that
0: got pushed, and then, you know, it's it's still rolling. <laughs> and, and speaking of it still rolling, so let's let's skip ahead to now. Um, uh, what do you mm-hmm. what do you do in your current role at uh, Myborn Wolf? Um, um, yeah, unfortunately, not not really
1: uh, like hands-on mobile testing anymore. <laughs> it's <laughs> I, I'm now an, a head of software testing at Wolf. Um It's a clear management position. Yeah, so um, we are testing software for all kinds of clients uh, within Germany at the moment. So we're focusing on the at the moment on the German-speaking market. And um, the department that I'm heading with with another colleague is uh, we are 36 people now. With all kinds of backgrounds in, in software testing. We have technical people uh, really like test automation engineers, software engineering tests. We have also really great people uh, that are great in creating test strategies, test management, you know, managing big, big projects, big clients in terms of testing, in terms of quality and yeah, you know, ha- handling the people, helping them to grow, you know, help them to to learn new things, explore new topics, and then also to to help our clients, consult our clients, and to to actually advocate for more quality in, in the in the products they build.
0: And is is part of that job? So I can imagine. So one version of it might be we've got a product and we need someone to test it. Um, but but another mm-hmm. version might be we actually want we've got a product and we want to we want to learn how to do testing ourselves. Um, yes. is, is that yes, is that okay. part of it as well? So helping to work with them to exactly. come up with the right testing strategy exactly. for their, yeah. Yeah. and, and, and exactly. is that, I imagine, um, it's obviously got to be very different from product to product or industry to industry, mm-hmm. right? Like for example, in banking, um, or aviation testing might have very different kind of levels of requirements. <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, that, that leads me to, um, I know this is uh, you, you, you've talked about it on your, on your YouTube channel, but, um, that leads me to the question of testing certifications. Um, mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could just take take a few minutes to talk about that, because mm-hmm. I know it, it, that can be a controversial kind of issue in, mm-hmm. in the software testing world for all kinds of sort yes. of import, important reasons. Um, and so exactly. pe- people might not be, you know, might be a little bit surprised to hear that there could be controversies in software testing world, <laughs> but there are. Um, and uh, and so definitely. maybe you could talk a little bit about that and you, and maybe yeah, your yeah. position
1: on it as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, software certification or testing certifications are, I, I don't know how which words i used in my youtube video but it's like it's a hot topic you know it's like uh, you can easily start a fight uh, when when talking to to a person on that topic because um, they there are some bad um, testing certificates on the market yeah i would say and but on the other side there are also some good ones on the market yeah so there are one there are some on the market where you really have to study for 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 getting the certificate right you learn for some weeks on, on the topic some month you exchange with people on the topic you learn for the exam it's also a written exam and and then some sometimes there are exams that you just have to to learn either on your own like on a book or on on the, on the syllabus or you go into a class and then at the end you have to uh, do a multiple choice test and you have to really follow the words that are in you know in in the exam and this is like really i think it's it's there's too many boundaries when we talk about software testing because software testing is so complex yeah so that's the controversial part that some some people think that it's it's not really knowledge that you gain it's just passing an exam yeah it's like you know opening up your your brain putting everything in do the exam and then close it and never use the knowledge again Um, this this is this is the 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 bad uh, reputation of software testing certificates i have to say um they are useful um, um, because you might get a first job right especially if you're uh, let's say um, a junior software test engineer and you would like to get your your first uh, testing job the c- certificate might help you to get a job right because you already you, you tell the company uh, that you have Learn something about testing, and that you pass something, right? But still, you have to to grow on that fundamentals that you have learned in the certificates. That's that's important. Or if you're freelance um, software tester, for example, and you would like to get the next project, that's also helpful because some, as you mentioned, some industries they completely rely on these kind of certificates. Yeah. Being in banking, for example, they really want to have people that are certified because it might be part of their um, certifi- own certification process or or their own audit system that they have in place. So they have to to they have to assure that all the people that work for them have at least this and that certificate, right? So for them, it's just like a safety net. So that's why it's also important to have maybe to have it, yeah. Um, on the other side, I also know really great software testers in the in the community that have no single certificate, but they're really awesome and great. So that's that's the thing, right? So it's always the the, the you have to find a balance. Do you really need it for your job, yeah? You know, or do you just want to have it and to have it somewhere in your CV that you have this this kind of testing certificate? I always I, I only have what what do I have? I have two or three three of them, but. I don't need them in my current role, right? It's just uh, just I have them and that, that it's almost 10-12 years ago that I, have that, that I made them or got them, so yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, th- thanks very much for that really great nuanced answer, right? I mean, I think it's important often when we, when we sort of look at these things to understand that there's, you know, there's, there's people looking at this from all kinds of different perspectives and different interests, right? And so mm-hmm. if, you're, exactly. um, if you're, say, like not in a technical role, but you're in, say, a kind of managerial role, And someone, something goes wrong and people ask you, well, who'd you have working on that? Mm -hmm. And you can say, well, I followed the guide. At least you can say, well, I followed the guidelines and I only hired people who have these certifications, at least, you know, those, those, there's actually can be kind of very good reasons to have sort of Mm -hmm. mechanisms like that in place. Often, especially if people are kind of, you know, at at a certain level, and if, if, especially in very hierarchical organizations at a certain level, there's kind of zero domain expertise in the the mind of the person who's sort of responsible for that domain at a yeah. responsible at a certain level of abstraction in a way. And so these kinds of things can, can be very important and play an important role and yeah. But but of or, course that means you need to, you need to be, you need to be aware, like of why it yeah. exists for kind of procedural and bureaucratic exactly. reasons. Um, and yeah. it doesn't really mean anything in itself, but you still have to do. It yeah, sometimes. exactly. Or if you have the, the recruiters, for example, or HR department, if they
1: filter for applicants and they don't have like their checklist or certificates, yeah. So that might be also like the first step to, to pass that barrier. Yeah.
0: That's interesting. That reminds me, actually reminds me too of something you said there, which is um, sometimes when, when you take some of the, the, the not-so-good um, kind of certifications, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, you learn the words, the arbitrary words they lighted yeah. upon in their exam creation, and then you just sort of learn to spot the pattern of words in the multiple choice Mm -hmm. options given to you. Um, But, but, but that, but at at another level of communication actually is a really, really important skill uh, when it comes to words and recognize, and like even being able to recognize those word patterns actually is an important skill, right? Because when you, I imagine when you sort of are working on a new code base, you have Mm -hmm. to kind of learn the internal language that developed around mm-hmm. that code base that the programmers have but then you have to learn what the business side of things how the words that they have too right in order to report to them what the problems are and what caused mm-hmm. them so you have to learn Definitely. these different languages yeah
1: yeah i mean that's anyways the one of the key skills of testers should have right is this communication and interpersonality skills you know to be able to talk with developers a different language than talking with the product manager or with the designer or with, I don't know, an external stakeholder or with the customers, for example, right? So that's um, sometimes always, I think it's a really challenging part um, of, of the software tester,
0: but it's, it's, really, it's, it's really, really important to have these communication skills. Yeah. yeah, I think I spoke to someone once who sort of somewhat tongue-in-cheek was like, when you're speaking to the, the, the sort of people responsible for the business side, you always speak in terms of revenue and, uh, exactly. <laughs> and and uh, this will save you this much money, or this will make you this much money. And then when you're talking maybe to the programmers, it'll be like this will save you this much time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and so just does ask kind of a, a kind of a cheesy question, um, but I imagine <laughs> you know being in the software testing yourself, you probably get versions of this from time to time at at the pub or kind of you know when you're introduced to a new in law or something like that. Which is every once in a while you hear about these giant initiatives that just completely fail, you know, healthcare.gov. And that's getting a bit of, that's becoming a bit of a dated reference, but that was, that was a big deal in the mm-hmm. United States a while ago with huge political implications for it. Um, we've got run at one a long running thing in Canada right now about, you know, what sounds simple, which was like a, a payment system for the federal government employees. Mm-hmm. That's just in a, it's just a giant steaming pile of poo and it has been for a long time with you know (laughs) incredible amounts of money spent on it and it like it still kind of doesn't work even to the point of people not getting paid um and so if someone asks you oh hey you're in you're in software testing how is it that people can spend literally a billion dollars on on a software system and then it just doesn't work how can that happen yeah so that's my that's my, my pub table question for you it's 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 actually a tough question. I mean, um,
1: it's it's not that easy, right? I mean, it's uh, when software testers usually come in place, or in, in many cases, sometimes it's too late. Yeah, uh, like I mean, especially in these kind of projects, like really like big um, environmental or like big um, governmental projects, it's, it takes years, you know, for them to. To design something and to write their like their books and their requirements and that's our that's not the way it should be right. It should be, they they should involve software testers, developers, designers as as early as possible, like in an agile way, right? To be in a, in the discovery phase in an early process, you know, to to gather the insights and ask that also the customers like what what is the the, this, the the problem that we should solve, and this is not going to happen. this kind of um, big projects, right? It's software testers just come too late to to that stage where they should work and they should find the topics yeah and and um, that that's that's what i say it's usually the the biggest problem and also that the the bigger projects get um you have to how's how's the word? You have to 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 make an, a public offer, like a public request for for the project, right? So many many companies they can come together and to work with it and to to build the product. And then sometimes it's 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 um, provider A, provider C and D and E, and they don't know each other, but they have to work together. So they are not. Having the same development standards, they don't work in the same language. They may be working in different time zones, and all those implications. This, this ends up in such a huge mess, right? I mean, that's in the end, it comes down to people and to communication, and and also to, of course, to mis um miss planning of the project, right? I mean, it's just like too big. It's just you cannot um, foresee all the different edge cases that that might occur on such a big thing. Yeah, but you have to. Of course, you have to start at some point. But, yeah, bring people together as early as possible, I would say, and then they will they will do something great, uh, but usually also with politics and all these kind of things. it's yeah, it's uh, maybe the wrong people get 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 addressed to the topic as well, right? also from a from a higher management position. And I mean, we have the same situations in Germany. We have all kinds of projects that completely failed. On, on such a big level uh, in the same way, right? I mean, developing software for years or building product for years that nobody will use, or in the end, it will, it will be rejected by the EU, for example, because it doesn't re- um, comply to the, to the laws and stuff, so, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, we could, we, could, we could probably talk for a long time about regulation yeah, as well and how, um, yeah. uh, how, how crucial and sometimes arbitrary um, regulation and changes in mm-hmm. regulation can be and how those can impact the way you have to sort of design, design and implement things. Um, speaking of just one last question I have about this before we go on to talk about your book. Um, but um, you know, the idea of like people coming together to work together who might come from different perspectives and have different skill sets, they might also mm-hmm. have different perceptions of their own and each other's skill sets as well. And you've developed this um, tool, I guess, called the testing, I guess I would call it called the testing wheel um, mm-hmm. to help, to help manage that kind of thing. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, what inspired that idea and, and how that works. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I also got, I mean, I, I basically copied the testing wheel from uh, the product wheel. i uh, got, got uh, created by Petra Wille. It's also, she's a, a German um, product expert, uh, also in the, in the greater Hamburg region. And I basically, I read her book, it's called Strong, Strong Product People. And there she wrote about how basically to develop people uh, on, the, on a certain scale of, of things. Yeah? And I, I, I kind of like the idea of, okay, this is like a really nice and easy framework that you can use in order to talk about different topics with your direct reports, for example, or with your own manager. So I, I derived the, the testing wheel. I think it has, has eight categories with um, agile working, test automation or testing in general, um, communication skills, growth plans and so forth and so forth. And what I do with the testing wheel is I explain each category to, to my direct reports, tell them, okay, this is, this is the categories that we have in the company. And then they should rank themselves. How do they see themselves in the testing wheel, for example, in the technical testing part? Do they think they are on the on the really on the on the outer end? Uh, so everything is perfect. I know everything. Or do they see themselves like at the very center of the of the of the wheel? So they need to get more help and more guidance. They do it on their own and for themselves. And I do it for them, how I see them. And then we put the testing wheel together. And then we see, okay, they're like, okay, there's, let's say, technical testing skills. Um, one colleague says, okay, he knows everything. And I say, okay, he's in the middle of the range, right? So there's a gap. So we should talk about it. So why why he thinks or she thinks she is perfect. And I think there's room for improvement. You know, it's, it's not for... I don't use it to, to judge people and to know to to rank them in some sort of a hierarchy key or next um, salary increase or something. I use it as a as a personal growth framework to actually help the people and show them like, look, that's what you think and that's what I think. And it's easily also to be extended with with others in, in the team, for example. Ask someone to to fit in the, the testing wheel or the wheel itself for 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 him or her to just get some feedback. You know and that's 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 the main purpose for me to bring the people together to talk about their perception of their work and how they see themselves and whether they see room for improvement and that's i i really like it you know it's there's so many great discussions going started. and
0: yeah that's cool yeah no yeah it struck me as a really great idea and um and you mm-hmm. know there, there is a bit of a sort of um bracing element to it as well right as as, as friendly mm-hmm. as it can be in the end you know. Evaluating yourself and others um, is, is an important exercise to go through for, for, for teamwork um, mm-hmm. and, and to, to sort of step back and go, like, we're all doing jobs here and it, it is important for yeah. us to kind of be objective about ourselves and each other from time to time, even mm-hmm. if we might not always like like what we hear. Um, of course. No. Uh, so moving on to the next part of the interview, where we talk about your book, um, we'll, we'll talk about uh, hands-on mobile app testing. Um, mm-hmm. We'll talk about, in the last part, we'll talk about how it's actually, in a sense, a second edition. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm really interested in, in, in uh, talking about that story. Um, but this is a, I want to say, this is a really, really good book um, for anyone interested in this subject. Um, uh, and uh, it's grounded in, in history, um, which I found which I found mm-hmm. fascinating. You have this section near the beginning where you talk about the history of basically mobile mm-hmm. telephony. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, which starts in the seventies, um, mm-hmm. and at least along one, one timeline, um, there's always ways of mm-hmm. teasing it earlier with, with any kind of technology, <laughs> of right. But, but, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. How did we get, how did we get from, uh, you know, uh, the, the sort of first sort of, you know, I, I guess huge, they weren't even bricks, they would have been blocks or something like that. Mm-hmm. That might've been in trucks or something like that mm-hmm. at, to, exactly. uh, to where we are with 5g today. hmm yeah, I mean it's. Uh, I
1: mean it's, it's. just 60 years, almost 60 years ago, right? I mean, imagine back then. Uh, I think the first one they were mounted as to said, to, to trucks. Uh, they were only able to like to pick up the the the, the, the phone and just talk one direction. So it was not bidirectional. So it was only one way communicating right through it. And that that was amazing. And then of course there were like companies. I can't remember all of the companies. That were back then like involved in the into the development of the of the networks and, you know, and the establishment of the first uh, 1G network basically where you were able to to have the first phone call uh, in in both ways in both both direction. but still it was mounted to to big trucks and you know to big uh, big. Big stations, right? It wasn't really mobile back then. Uh, and then I think the the biggest milestone that happened was the the 2G or uh, later on the GPRS uh, technology when we when we move into the into the 80s, right? Where we had the worst, very first phones that were I don't know how how tall they were, like really big ones, and the, the battery was not really lasting for for an hour or something, and when people were um yeah using them was uh, in maybe in upper management or I don't know, kind of companies were really business uh, busy managers using the the phones back then. I mean, we all know the 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 Hollywood movies where you can see the the I think it was a Motorola. I'm not good at history. <laughs> I think it was the Motorola phone back then. Um, what 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 you have seen on, on television and then of course, yeah, I mean people, the industry was evolving, the, the, the market was there, the people have seen the benefits of using mobile phones, and then it evolved from the 2G networks over to 3G, uh, where you had really like a faster internet, right? And then um, I think also the, the big accelerator back then was, it was basically the first iPhone in 2007. Before that, I mean, before that, we had what what we had. We had Nokia's, we had Samsung, Ericsson. You know, all the BlackBerry devices with a physical keyboard, small screen, really bad resolution. You were not able to to extend the device with apps. You had some some browser capabilities, I would say. You were able to to get some more information or some information from some websites. I mean, at the same time, the internet was just like growing. You know, it was it was a parallel uh, parallel growth, basically and and then yeah i mean in 2007 then when when apple introduced the first iphone i think that that was the the revolution right i mean i still remember the interview by i uh, was steve balmer microsoft saying hey, this will never will never be a success you know where he was laughing and like and this was also part of one of my book that when i talked on a conference to a guy and talking about mobile testing where he totally underestimated the mobile testing, like ah, it's just like, it's just so and a small thing. And then one or two years later, he also gave a big talk about mobile testing. So that's was what is what I'm always uh, also have uh, written in the book is that never under- underestimated technology. Right? It might look really small and tiny, but it can be some can be the next big thing. Yeah. Of course, there might be some failures in between. We have we had we had this already, uh, also in the past in technology, but. Um, yeah, mobile is here to stay, I would say. And then, of course, after Apple introduced the iPhone, then we had uh, the, the first um, Android phone uh, coming up. And then, yeah, we know where we are at the moment, right? We have the different, uh, the different mobile networks that had to be developed because of the, the data speeds and, and the use cases that we have. I mean, now we have 5G. We can, uh, we can stream music, videos, have video conference calls everywhere, wherever we
0: want to have uh, the conversation, yeah? Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that, 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 that great sort of very high level history. It is, it is interesting. One thing you, you captured there was um, how uh, back in the day, having a, a mobile phone meant you were an important person. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. This is something that I think, you know, like sort of, you know, we've dated ourselves already, but, you know, you kids these days might not know that like in, in, in the olden times, like that meant that was a very, it wasn't even a status symbol. It was a sign of, impor- of kind of that okay. you were doing something important. Um, mm-hmm. and time sensitive that required this, this special technology and exactly. um, and then sort of of course miniaturization became a sort of feature. When, when, when phones became more commonplace, then the smaller the phone, the more important mm-hmm. a person you were somehow. Mm-hmm. There was a great Saturday night live sketch with um, Will Farrell, I think where like he was playing like a kind of important fashion designer or something and he had this little phone that was like the size of a finger- <laughs> fingernail or something like that. Um, but, but then, but it is interesting because uh the the revolution that the iPhone represented right where the whole face of it i think that for the first one the whole face was already a screen right um mm-hmm. and and it was and it was touch no no there would have been a button at the bottom um, the button yeah uh, yeah. yeah but um, but most of the face was a screen and um then 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 actually you kind of wanted phones to be bigger you didn't want them to be as small as you could possibly mm-hmm. make them but basically what what you know a, a lot of people would have missed is that this is not just um a well this is not just a phone anymore a and and b there's a lot more to it than it just being like a desktop computer in your pocket um uh, and just to hone in on the on that last part because you write about this very well Mm -hmm. uh that mobile phones are you know it's it's not just a computer that can talk to other computers or something like that there are all these um, uh, sensors and sort of ways of interacting Mm -hmm. with them that are very different from any other computing device that you're going to use, which, which brings all these fascinating challenges. Cause we were talking, you know, all the testing we've been talking about so far is like with a keyboard in front of a screen basically. Uh, But now you've got something that's like, got a sensor on the inside. Like, let's say with a, with a watch um, Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's, that's looking at your heart rate. Um, Mm -hmm. And then that might be like, you know, associated with data coming in from like a magnet that's sort of in the, you know, in the, in the phone, that's sort of sensing what direction you're facing. Um, And then that might have a, what is it? um, Something in it like a gyroscope that can tell whether you're going up, Mm -hmm. yeah, whether you're going up and down and how much you're going Mm -hmm. up and down. And then that might be communicating with a satellite to tell you what mountain you're, you're snowboarding down, exactly snowboarding app. And it's like, how do you test that? Well, you kind of have to go snowboarding.
1: Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah that's also a big part of the book I mean t- t- telling the readers that they have to test the app where the customers will use it in the end yeah depending on the app use case you have to go outside on 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 a mountain for example if you would like to to test uh, the features for for snowboarder right i mean it's I mean, it's it, we're testing it in a, in a cozy office in a, in a strong Wi-Fi network with uh, I don't know 20, 22 degrees uh, in the in the office. It's 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 a nice cozy environment. But imagine being outside on on a, on a mountain, you know, wearing big clothes and 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 everything, and you you have goggles on it. You cannot really see what's going to happen on the screen, and you have maybe cold fingers, or you have special gloves for you know touching on the screen, and this this all adds to to the to the result of the product in the end and this is something that you have to see in real life yeah that you have to test in real life and also in the real environment and i was speaking of uh, data networks i mean maybe on top of the mountain all good you have 5g network but going down in the valley you might have no internet at all what's going to happen with the app in that situation is the data being sent and so forth and so forth and these are so many scenarios that you have to, to first of all, to find out when working in mobile testing and for your app, to write them down and to make them transparent also within the team, so that everybody knows. Okay, that's what we are building for the products, the company, on the the customers. Then you can you can you can build something good.
0: Yeah, and so and so, what are um, uh, what are some of the sort of like high level kind of strategies that that you that you mm-hmm. talk about in the book, I guess you could take a few minutes to talk about those that are sort of unique to mm-hmm. mobile mobile mm-hmm. testing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm I have one
1: chapter talking about basically the challenges of, of mobile testing, I mean, one of the biggest challenges that you have is, of course, the different devices. Device fragmentation is a, is a big topic still on the market. I mean, it was a huge topic on Android uh, back then. When there were, I mean, there's still it's still a huge topic on Android, right? Where you have like uh, 20, to 30,000 of different hardware, software configurations uh, put, uh, available on the market. And back then, the iOS developers were, were always laughing and haha, we we have only one device with one operating system version and everything uh, everything works. But also device fragmentation is now a topic on iOS. Yeah, so you have, I mean, that's I, I think it's a good thing that we have device fragmentation on iOS because Apple is really Giving support for their for older devices in terms of software updates, in terms of security, that's good for the developers and for testers. It adds more complexity to it because you have to support older devices, slower phones, you know, s- uh, slower hardware, and so forth and so forth. So that that's that's one of the biggest challenges that you have to to tackle in your testing strategy for mobile apps. So I usually I, I read so many blog posts about it that you should. Get, gather information about your customers, right? Know who is using your app in the end. And if you know that, you can see what kind of devices are they using. Yeah? If you know that they have only on Android, let's say two three manufacturers, focus on those manufacturers and, and OS versions that they use. Same on iOS. So to narrow down the complexity of, of the devices, because nobody can test on thousands of the devices uh, on each cycle of, of an app release. And it's also way too expensive to 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 handle all those things. So that's that's one thing that I usually tell them. And then <clears throat> also talking about uh, mobile test strategies. Then what what we just had as the example before, um, make make everyone clear what we are building for. What's the app purpose? What problem will the app solve? Yeah, being it a sports activity app, is it a business app? Is it an app for, I mean, for shopping and these kinds of things? And then note down some 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 scenarios that can impact the, the app later on in the in the wild in in, in in real customers' hands. And and then to derive from that knowledge, derive things that you would like to do in your daily life as a software or mobile tester. Yeah, um, testing for the different sensors, for example, might be one thing, or testing for Um, third-party app integrations, for example. Uh, I had once a really nice bug that we had a calendar export in the product that I was testing back then. And we were just exporting the data to the phone, and we said, well, okay, there's a calendar on Android, there's a calendar on iOS, it's working out. But then I was thinking like, hey, we have an app store, we can install other apps. So I would check what's the top um, um, rated calendar app, not from Android or not coming from iOS, so I downloaded them. I used them, and it was a completely nightmare. <laughs> Nothing was working, so no, so no data synchronization was going to happen, and these kind of things. So that that's important. What I mean with the testing strategies, yeah, and and then to, of course to test in the different uh, for different sensors. Yeah, if you if you use I mean, one finger, two finger rotating, pinch to zoom, uh, landscape, portrait is is really a nice thing to test on all apps that you have because you can find easily. Uh, lots of bugs, yeah, on that side. Uh, on the other side, what you also should should keep in mind is that um, mobile testers and mobile testers, sorry, mobile users, they have really high expectations to their own devices. So they, I mean, you get a phone for a thousand of dollars, it's 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 a lot of money, and. At the same time, the mobile device is a really personal device for them. You know, they have their banking on it. They book their holidays. They have their, their pictures from the family. They have their, their, their movies on there. So they have everything in this little tiny uh, thing. And they have really high expectations also to the software that is running on this system. Um, so that's why you have to keep in mind that users tend to, to delete an app pretty fast. If they don't like it, go to the competitor. And that's why you have to be um, also keen on The whole thing of usability testing, yeah, performance testing and security. That's also usually a topic that is um, yeah, companies that don't want to pay for it. Yeah, let's say so. They 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 just want to get the, the features out, you know, and then they hope and pray that no, no, nobody will hack the system, no data breach is going to happen. But um, this this is bad. Yeah, this is bad. And this is also something that you should put into a testing strategy. And there's so many things to think about, yeah. Just um. Just, yes, yeah, no, that, sorry, that's that's really
0: great. It, that's really great. I mean it's interesting that trying to trying to just grasp all the complexity of you know, sort of like you were saying, device fragmentation and then different devices talking to each other across different operating systems mm-hmm. and stuff like that and, and different apps. Um, and but that 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 um idea or or reality of high user expectation just really loads on the weight, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, people um, as you said, they have all these things on there, but like. Partly, I think it's like partly because we, we can have them in our hands and we can wave them around and we tap on them. Mm-hmm. We, I'm doing this with my, no one can see, but I'm doing it with my phone in front of the <laughs> screen right now. Um, we relate to people. People still use the word virtual, but like, you know, when they talk mm-hmm. about doing things on screen sometimes, but um, it's a tool. Um, and and when you, when you pick up a hammer and you're hammering a nail, you don't want to think about the hammer, right? Like it's mm-hmm. just, you're not, you don't want to think about it at all. I'm hammering you know you're not even thinking that you are hammering when you're using it and if something if it imagine if you hit the nail and there was like a slight delay between the, the, the hitting the nail and it actually like being being hit, <laughs> if you know what i mean right like yeah you'd be like ah it's well now i can't i can't hammer with it anymore and yeah. you'd th- you throw the hammer away and this yeah. is kind of what happens when people like they'll go to download an app and it's like oh the app didn't work well that delete and off yeah. you know that this might have been your dream startup you going to change the world i'm going to be the next steve jobs and like no everybody forgot about it a minute later mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. and so i, I like uh, one thing that i think you recommend is um and this can this might seem kind of trivial if you've never built anything the first thing you should do after you launch an app is download it yourself yeah of course <laughs>
1: <laughs> absolutely i mean uh, i mean it's also in the book it's it's called the, the update testing Uh, It's something that you definitely should do before an app release, right? I mean, similar to the update process of the app before submitting it to the app stores. Because, I mean, we also had a situation, that's why I put it in the book, because it happened to me personally. So we were like, uh, you know, sometimes when you build releases, it's sometimes a rush, you know, we need to get it out. Let's do it, let's do it. And I I was talking to the developer, hey, can you do the update testing for me? Because uh, I don't have enough time because I have to do on other things. And he said, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, I've done it, I've done it. I would do it, I would do it. And then we submitted, and I, I said, OK, I completely trusted him, saying, OK, let's, let's go for it. And then um, we pushed the button. And it you know, t- take some time until the apps are available. Android takes some hours. On Apple, it takes a bit longer. And, and then I went home. And then like, like right in the middle of uh, commuting back home, he called me like, Daniel. We have an issue. The app is crashing right away after we downloaded it from the app store. It's like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Did you do the update test? And it's like, okay, it's silence. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he completely forgot about it. And oh, uh, yeah. we had we had a database migration topic back then. So we had uh, the, 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 the mobile database that was on the phone. There was like a corrupted field. And yeah, updating from the old to the latest version crashed the app. There was no chance of repairing it. The app was broken and... You mentioned the user has a broken app and he might never come back. Yeah, so that that's why it's important to think of all these kind of scenarios. Yeah, I usually use the the method metaphor um, of remember the the, the, the the magazines back then when they had these CDs on it. You know, you you you, they, you have a, a big piece of software on a CD and it's shipped to the customers. It's same with apps. If you have everything in the app and you cannot control something from a backend or from an API perspective, for example. The app is out there on a device of a, of, a, of a user, and if the user is lazy in updating the app, he or she will not get the latest update of, of the phone. And if auto update is disabled, for example, right,
0: you might have lost the customer. Uh, so that's why it's important to think about this case. And when it comes to, uh, um, you know, sort of methods and strategies for dealing with all this complexity, um, there is one, one mm-hmm. thing called crowd testing. And I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit about, about what that is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also um, part six of the book, yeah, chapter six,
1: I'm talking about uh, alternative mobile testing techniques, and crowd testing is definitely something that, that you can integrate in your daily life in, in the software development, and so crowd testing, as the name already suggests, is you, you give the, the, the piece of software, being it a mobile app or being a web application or any kind of software, uh, you give them, you give it to a crowd, like to, to a broader audience of people, and there are providers out there so like crowd testing providers. they, they offer a grout to you so you can you can basically uh, get a grout <laughs> for, for some euros or dollars and um, with that you can you can tell the, the, the cloud provider okay I need um, specific personas for example, I need um, a different age group, different interests on that on that testing group and, and then you give the product to that group and they test the product for you. So there might be customers, there might be crowd testers, and they, they give feedback, fresh feedback outside from your perspective. right? So it's, you can also call them beta testers or early customer testing and these kinds of things. And, and then you get feedback through the crowd provider. So the, these testers uh, can be uh, housewives, mechanics, teachers, students, all kinds of people can sign up on those platforms. And they test your product based on your requirements. And then you get some feedback. Yeah, so that that's that's basically what crowd testing is all about. Uh,
0: just before we move on to the last part of the interview, where we talk about mm-hmm. your work as a as a writer, um, I wanted to ask you about the. Ne- I, I guess it, it's been around for a while in various forms, but you know the sort of next frontier in this all this kind of testing complexity is the Internet of Things. And I was just wondering if you could sort of you know I know you've you've talked about it recently in a in a in a video on your on your YouTube channel, but just very briefly, what are some of the interesting challenges yet unique to the Internet of Things that, that, that mm-hmm. testers are going to have, you know, people who are like, you know, test strategy crafters are going to have to face mm-hmm. going forward? <laughs>
1: Yeah, IoT is, is another level of or another level of complexity, I would say, because it's. Uh, I mean, it's, there's so many things that can be an IoT device, right? It can be like a, a small button that you could put somewhere, and this is able to communicate already with your mobile device, for example. So it's all kinds of different sensors and, and technologies and also built in, for example, in fridges, washing machines and these kinds of things. So it's all everything can be an internet or thing. like it can be connected to the internet and can send data in all kinds of fashion. So it doesn't need to have a screen, for example. So it might be completely completely just a microprocessor or micro microcomputing system that is collecting data from let's say environmental data. It's something that that farmers use uh, quite heavily to gather some some feedback on the on the temperature, on the on the on the humidity, on, on the on the fields, for example, and to send those data to, to a server and then to to give some guidance, and this adds a lots of complexity, especially because you have to test again everything together. So, the, the, the isolated testing at IoT or in IoT is not is not the biggest challenge because you test on let's say on the on the IoT device, you can test the communication, you can test the backend, everything separately but then in the end you have to test end to end everything together and this is basic that's a huge challenge actually because this is really hard to automate especially if you think about technical hardware that is really like sitting somewhere as i said this farming example right in in the middle of nowhere so you have to build up the infrastructure in a, in a lab situation or you have to talk to a farmer or to get some some beta testers and these kind of things to to gather the the, the real insights because such an IoT device has is also affected by the environmental um, surroundings, like rain and sun. Going back to the farming example, this adds all to the complexity of, of IoT testing. Yeah, so that, that's that's the big challenge, and it's it's, I would say it's more technical. It's even more technical than mobile testing. Yeah, because you have to really go into the code, uh, check the logs, uh, write some scripts. Uh, even even more on than on mobile testing. to gather the insights.
0: Just uh, moving on to the last part of the interview, where we talk about um, your, as I just said a moment ago, about, about your experience writing. So your, your book, Hands-On Mobile App Testing, is actually a second edition, um, the one that's available exactly. on Facebook right now, and that you will talk about the, the print version on Amazon as well. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, the first edition and how that came about mm-hmm. and, and who you, the publishing company you worked with on, on that project. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah, I think um, I started the book, uh, I actually was the idea that, that came when I was home alone, and I think it was 2014. Uh, I was home alone, my wife was not there. I was, I was sitting, reading my blog, seeing all the good feedback and saying, okay, why not starting a book? <laughs> that, that, was, that was basically the start. And I was like, okay, I am. Um, I, I, why not? I let's, let's see if I can make it, right? And I just outlined the chapters, what I would like to do, I would like to add in the book and so forth and so forth. I did some research, what kind of books are on the market and all these kinds of things. And then I just started with, with writing. Yeah. And a uh, fun fact, I don't know if you know it, but at the first edition, I also published with lean pub in the very beginning. Oh, I didn't know that. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Uh, I published with lean So I also wrote with, with all the, uh, with Markdown. I wrote with Markdown completely because uh, I was, I wanted really to focus on, on the text, on the content and not with all the, you know, the boilerplate of, uh, having some, some, you know, like with Word or other tools that you can use in formatting text. So I was writing it and um, yeah, I was using LeanPub back then because I had no experience with publishing. I had no experience with how to to sell, how to market a book. And LeanPub back then, uh, it was perfect for me because it was easy. It was easy for me to sign up. It was easy to set up. I could really focus on writing. And, And so I published. I published on LeanPub and I was pretty happy with with the first outcome. I think the book published in, when was it, end of 2014. I almost wrote for one year on the book. Uh, I think it was completely one year in my spare time in vacation every day. And and then I got contact via my my testing network to, to, to a publisher it's like hey do you want to have a real book because back then i was like mm, yeah an ebook is really nice it's cool but i had the feeling like okay i would like i would to have something in my hands you know like a real book and this print on demand services back then i don't know if they were already established back then and and then the the publishing company they approached me like hey yeah we would like to publish your book so yeah sounds great and and then i i i, I had to take it down from Leanpub back then of course and I gave them uh, all the rights. So they were printing it. They were selling it. And um, now last year, I contacted them, contacted them saying, hey, look, uh, there are some parts outdated in the book. You know, the, the link sources are not valid anymore, most of them, because tools are not there on the market anymore, or the the, the, the URLs have changed and the, the chapters have to rework and so forth and so forth. And they were not really like interested in the topic. I don't know why. They, they, they didn't give me any insights, like why maybe it was not selling enough for them. Yeah, because I, I guess so because otherwise they would have asked for the second edition. and then I said, okay, then then I can I get the rights back because I, I put so many hours uh, into the book and so so much love to it and I, it helped so many people I don't want to to let the project die yeah so and then they it took them ages. <laughs> I think it was seven or eight months until they, they told me like hey, you can get your rights back. And, and then the first first natural thing was okay, I go with leap up again yeah. So I, I set up everything again. I even had the, my account because I also wrote the other book, Smartwatch App Testing, and set everything up. And uh, it was still the same smooth experience as back then. It was, it was really, really great. I took time to rework the chapters and everything. And then I think last week I had published <laughs> on the book and uh, just just see
0: how, how, how the users would like it, my readers. Yeah, that's a really great story. Yeah, I did not know that, that the, the first edition of the first edition was, was published on Leanpub, Um, and just for anyone listening, um, uh, to have someone publish a book on Leanpub and then have to have to take it down because they got bought by a publisher. That's great. Like to us, that's a huge, mm-hmm. hugely successful outcome. And that's awesome. And we have a, we have a feature called unpublishing a book, um, that's yeah. there part, partly for that reason. I'm I'm very curious about so this 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 is something that people in the self-publishing world write about a lot, um, which is you know and, and in the publishing world generally about about rights and stuff like that. So you got your you you when 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 the publisher got the rights to your book, they they you know you signed a contract with them and there was mm-hmm. agreements exactly. about royalties and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But years later, you actually got it back just by asking, is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. it, took, it took a while, but you just asked them, they gave them back. Exactly. Yeah, I asked them like, "Hey,
1: how about a second edition?" Because again, I got feedback from from many readers like, "Hey, look, it's outdated." Also, some Amazon reviews uh, they were like really bad, saying, "Oh, the, the link's not working anymore." You know, this this is wrong and this is outdated. I mean, it was there for uh, seven more than seven years. I mean, this, of course, it's outdated. Yeah. Um, what, what else in technology, right? And and then I I contacted them, like, hey let's talk, let's, what, what do you think? Let's, let's do a second edition. And they were like, Hmm, we don't know. Let's see. And, and then at some point I asked them, okay, then then give me your rights back on my rights back. And they agreed. That's yeah, great. Th- actually.
0: Yeah, no, that, that is really great. And it's, it's interesting too, because, you know, sometimes, sometimes the book publishing world can be very unforgiving, but, 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 yeah. but, but there's other interactions you can have with people in the book publishing world where it's the long-term and it's relationships that matter as well. And if, if you're a publisher mm-hmm. and like, you know, you care about your reputation and stuff like that, if, if authors who are passionate about what they do and like, you know, a book is a, is a is in some ways a unique kind of product where it's very often very one person directed um, and uh, it takes over their life. As you say, your vacations and weekends telling your family and why is why is why is mommy sure. in the why isn't yeah. mommy coming out to the park today? Well, she's got to work on her book, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And then if yeah. a, and so if a book isn't making money for a publisher anymore, and if it's even just getting complaints and stuff like that, and the author's like, you know, Hey, can I have it back? I want to do more with it. It actually is mm-hmm. something that can happen that where they'll they will they will just give it to you just like you described. Um, mm-hmm. uh, okay. And, and it is, it is, but don't, but I would say don't count on it. Um, no. <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're thinking of signing no. a, a contract with a publisher um, yeah. uh, I mean, this is, you know, not, not legal advice or anything like that, but like, Exactly. You, should, you should have a worst case scenario mindset when it comes to yeah. the language that you yeah. agree to. And you can actually have, sorry, and you can not have clauses like mm-hmm. if and when, blah, blah, the rights exactly. referred to me exactly
1: exactly the good thing is that i i always had a really good relationship with with the publisher yeah we are, it was always it was always great you know the support was great in the beginning and then when once got published everything was 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 really cool and so why not i mean they were also fine with it i guess so that that's that's the thing and yeah i like it i mean i have the reference in the book that it was previously published with with the other publisher and that's that's the legal part and that yeah i'm, I'm fine with it you no know, they're also
0: fine uh, and you've got a print version up on Amazon. Um, mm-hmm. How did how did you do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I checked for the the print on demand services because I think uh, that again many 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 readers they would like to have a physical copy of of something, especially uh, on a, on a technical book that they would like. To, I mean, I'm I'm the same person. I have to say, I, I'm I have many e-books, but. You know, having a physical copy of something at home at my desk you know where I can mark something put post it's on it and can come back later it's I am more that kind of person, and I think that that was the reason why I would love to have also a print on demand. uh, service available and I, I heard so for good things on the on the Amazon print on demand service. I talked to some people and I signed up, I, I uploaded the documents, I had to to rework a bit of the designs, you know, the, the formatting was a bit different and um, I ordered a, an, an author copy, I got it, it was okay and I had to adjust again a bit and now it's, it's also on sale on Amazon. So let's see how it goes, it's just out since I think, yes,
0: I think since yesterday or so, it's available, yeah. That's great. That's great. Um, and actually, this is one of the reasons we saved this, this kind of talk for the last part of the interview, because we really get into the weeds. But um, this issue of outdated links in books is, is, is a long running one. Um, and mm-hmm. you've, you've got a, a sort of solution that you've devised to this issue mm-hmm. in your book that I actually have never seen before. And I was wondering, mm-hmm. I mean, it might not be, it might not be unique to you, but um, that this mm-hmm. is the first time I've seen it. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, your approach there. Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: yeah, sure. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that for, for quite some time. Like, okay, how can I solve the, the outdated link topic again for the second edition? And so um, I thought of um, using my blog in between. So having have basically a proxy in between the link pages, uh, the links that I have in my book. So all the links in my book, they have um, the chapter title, like the chapter a number plus a plus number, just increasing number. And this links to a specific book page, a uh, specific page on my blog, yeah. And on my blog, I have the the, the the link that should have been in the book, yeah. So the links inside the book will always point to my blog, and on my blog, I will make sure that the links that fit to that uh, text um, sentences or to that to that story will always be up to date, yeah. So I make sure that these links are always valid. So no matter if you bought the book in let's say two three years. The links in the book are valid and on my blog they will change but will give you the same kind of information
0: yeah yeah maybe just 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 on the off chance that's not clear i'll, I'll put it in i'll put it in my words but it's a very interesting mm-hmm. interesting thing which is basically every link in the book would appear with something like ch-02 right and then mm-hmm. the next one would be ch exactly. C, well no it would be like ch2-03 or ch2-04 mm-hmm. and that would be it's chapter two and it's the third link it's chapter two exactly. and it's the fourth link yeah. and every time you click a link you go to this in the book you go to the same page on daniel's blog um but then you look up oh ch03 ch-03 and then there's a link there mm-hmm. and that's the thing that exactly. you're keeping you're maintaining yeah, and keeping you. live all the time exactly um uh, so you match the code in the book to the code mm-hmm. on the page exactly and that's the link and that's that's a super interesting way of, uh, of keeping it live. And one of the reasons I say that is because like it, it would work for a print book as well, which is probably mm-hmm. one of the Exception. things you did it, right? Like, you just, you could put the link, the web address in the print book to that one mm-hmm. single page. And it's like, you will find here, maintained updated links for all the links in this book. Exception. Um, yeah. and that's just a really, it's a really interesting, uh, way of solving that problem. Um, mm-hmm. The last question i always like to ask uh, on the podcast if the guest is a leanpub author is if um, there was one terribly broken awful thing that frustrated you to no end and had you shouting at the screen when you were using leanpub or if there was one magical feature we could build for you can you think of anything that you would ask us to do Magical thing
1: that's a good question uh... One thing that I found con- confusing the last days was uh, the, the menu structure. When you are in, you are an author. You have your bookshelf, and then you go to. You have the settings. You have the community tab, and then sometimes for me, I mean, it was just like the very first time. It was like it was a bit confusing where to find all the subsections of coupons, royalties, uh, settings for progress bar, and these kind of things. This was like a was a long list of of things. So that was that was a bit was not a big deal i had i had to look it up right i have to really read through it It was not clear in the very beginning for me so that that that's um that was some something i would wish for and for the yeah for the real cool thing would be i mean having a print on demand service included would be really awesome to not go somewhere else but i I think this is a a really big challenge to tackle with printing cutting sending
0: out books so this would be perfect this would be like the, the the the, the really perfect thing. Yeah. Th- thanks very much for sharing both of those. When it comes to to menus and navigation, this is, I mean, you know, we're we're better than we used to be, and there's always room for improvement. But um, yeah, you know, one yeah. Our, yeah. one of our one of our um shortcuts for that, which is we we kind of we don't really surface this, but we talk about the author mm-hmm. app, which is basically like if mm-hmm. you're an author and you're you're working on books, creating books, stuff like that, we have the kind of author app side of things, um and um, mm-hmm. uh, in there if you, when you create a book or a course or a bundle there's an overview page um yes, for it, yes. where where, mm-hmm. where like where like we, we we set everything out in sections but it's but you know it's like mm-hmm. 30 links right each each exactly. each page has its own title and it's like about mm-hmm. you know or about which we then yeah. later called about the book right you know realizing exactly. we need to be a bit more yeah. explicit yeah. but but you know but what what yeah. even that like okay so but yeah but what's really good we you know we have one one um page called generation settings Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I mean, I, I, that gives me some clue about what kind of thing is going to be in there, but it doesn't actually tell me what's going to be in there. Yeah. Um, and so our, our various ways around it is to try to name the pages properly, um, mm-hmm. try to have, you know, f- have the right amount of, of pages so that like, you know, it's not all, you know, all your book settings are in one page because that can be really hard to find. Yeah, um, that's true. Uh, the, 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 the other way, the, the main tool I guess we have for that is our help center which is like, you know, where can I, where can I set, you know, this or that, like, you know, how, how, what percent complete is my book or how like the progress of the book. And we try to, we try to use keywords and well, as well. And then, then we have Mm -hmm. screenshots like here's the page on the, go to your book overview page and then click on about the book and then you'll find the blah, blah, blah. But, but that's, that's just an ongoing challenge. And we really appreciate feedback about that because, you know, most of the time people just live with it. And this is not true just with Leanpub, but with anything, people just live with it and sort of actually hearing back from people is really good mm-hmm. at them when it comes to, yeah, that, I mean, the magical make a print copy of my book available. I mean, we've had, we've had that request before. Um, you know, it's, it's possible that someday some third party print on demand service is going to approach us and just go, Hey, why don't we make a partnership? We'll work mm-hmm. with you, blah, blah. Uh, so like, I mean, it's possible that someday something like that will happen, but, but as you know, um, Dealing with with physical objects, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, if you want to refund on Leanpub, it's like a kind of like, oh, we just change some settings in your account with regard exactly. to accessing a book, and and you know, we we send you the money automatically. Whereas like refunding yeah. a physical book purchase is like exactly a That's completely thing. different thing. Um, and right. uh, um, and uh, you know, and if there's a if there's a, a a bug in the creation of an ebook, well, it's like, well, you know, tell us and we'll fix it, and then you click publish a publish button again on Leanpub. But if you, yeah. If you've sent out a hundred copies of a print book and they've all got a bug in them, you know that's probably a ninety-five returns um, uh, that you're going to have to handle. So, um, yeah. but anyway, uh, yeah, but no, but but we always really appreciate hearing that, and we know it. We know it's it's important. And what the, our our solution is our print-ready PDF export option, which we have. Mm-hmm. So basically, like you can you can from the same manuscript you use to produce your ebook, you can produce a print book. You just configure yeah. some settings, and then we give you the. The sort of like digital files that you need to upload to any print-on-demand yeah, that's, service that's that perfect. Use. Yeah. Um, That's totally perfect. Well, uh, Daniel, thanks you very much for uh, taking the thank time you. out of your, your evening uh, to, to talk to me and talk to us. And uh, thank you very much for uh, being a LeanPub author. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at LeanPub.com. Thanks.